Hi, I'm Zara Kazema from the National Observer. If you're enjoying The Salmon People, you might want to know that there's a lot more behind the curtain for our subscribers. We need our readers and our listeners to help us so we can keep producing podcasts, news, and investigations. We have a special offer right now for our new subscribers. Go to nationalobserver.com slash subscribe. After the decision to close 15 fish farms in the Discovery Islands, there was just one more decision for Minister Joyce Murray to make to fulfill her mandate from the Prime Minister. That is, to lay out the plan for how the remaining 57 fish farms will transition out of the ocean. The legal challenge by industry to stop the Discovery Islands decision could take up to a year, but the decision on the rest of the farms was set for the end of June. That decision could spell the end of fish farming in BC, and industry wasn't going to just sit back and wait for it. In addition to going to court, the industry is using persuasion, financial agreements, and social media to get First Nations support for the remaining fish farms to stay. The three biggest companies, Maui, Surmac, and Grieg, went to Ottawa to meet with as many politicians as possible, and they took to social media. Twitter, as it was still called at the time, was on fire with postings from the companies and their supporters. The message, food security, job security, and economic security will all be destroyed by the closure of the fish farms. And the closure of the farms is also adding to BC's carbon footprint. Despite their contentious relationship with many First Nations, Maui in particular frequently posts in support of Indigenous people as stewards of the environment and about important events like Indigenous People's Day. And then there's the logo. No farms, no future. But another Twitter account, this one with no obvious connection to the Norwegian companies, has been very active in its support of fish farming. It's called Love Canadian Salmon. Canadian is shortened to CDN. It's a fairly new account, and from the photos, you might think it's aquaculture workers arguing for their jobs. With a bright yellow and blue logo, Stop Closing Fish Farms in BC, the account posts handy facts about the industry. At a time when the world is urgently seeking out climate-friendly, sustainable solutions to food production, salmon farming represents a rare opportunity as no other kind of farming is as low carbon footprint and environmentally low impact. BC salmon farmers support research, development and technologies that enhance environmental sustainability and reduce the risk to wild salmon. And tweets about the disaster that's taking place from the farms already closed. British Columbia salmon farm closures have caused a significant increase in carbon emissions as salmon must be imported from outside Canada. And Love Canadian Salmon also blames the rise in the price of groceries on the closure of the fish farms. Governments have closed down 40% of salmon farms in since 2020, making groceries more expensive and wiping out jobs. The Twitter account asks people to go to the website Love Salmon and send an email to the government to help save fish farm jobs. But the Twitter account is not run by the ordinary workers worried about losing their jobs. It's registered to a public relations company in Toronto. I called the company Weber Shandwick to find out why they created the Twitter account. 
I was told it was created for the Canadian Aquaculture Industry Alliance. The chair of the board of directors of the Canadian Aquaculture Industry Alliance is Ian Roberts of Maui. The alliance includes fish farm companies in both BC and Atlantic Canada. Maui has two seats on the board, while CERMAC has one. Now, it isn't surprising an industry organization has a Twitter account supporting fish farms and that it was created by a public relations firm. And maybe it's not a big deal that they're not upfront about who's pulling the strings on that Twitter account. But they are putting out a lot of information about job losses, economic losses, indigenous losses, and climate damage from the closing of fish farms. And some of it is questionable. Some of it is untrue. And some of it could even be characterized as disinformation. I'm Sandra Bartlett, and from Canada's National Observer, this is The Salmon People, Episode 14, Pushing and Pulling. The fish farm companies spend a lot of time warning that closing fish farms will destroy thousands of jobs and have severe impacts on First Nations. But is that true? There's no disputing that fish farms contribute to the BC economy through hatcheries and processing plants and the farms themselves. But the actual number of jobs created by the industry is a moving target. The farms are highly automated and most of the jobs are service jobs. Companies contracted to supply or repair nets move people to and from the farms, divers who check the nets, or pull out dead fish. The BC Salmon Farmers Association, which represents the industry, has given out different numbers. When I checked the website in July of 2023, it says there are 7,000 full-time equivalent jobs. But if I scroll down, it says fish farming supports 7,000 families. Stan Probosch is a senior scientist with Watershed Watch. He's been following the salmon farming industry and has been on working committees with the industry for years. He says no one has ever been able to get the companies to provide a breakdown of the jobs. I don't buy their numbers because if you look on the BC Salmon Farmers website, I just cut it out, it says there are approximately 7,000 total full-time equivalent positions supported by the BC salmon farming industry. So that could technically include the guy working at the Tim Hortons drive through serving a fish farmer coffee when they go to work. Bob Chamberlain of the First Nation Wild Salmon Alliance disputes the idea of massive job losses if the farms have to close. He points to the transition planning document on the Department of Fisheries and Oceans website. The document laid out the consultations that would take place before final decisions were made. It said, quote, Getting the transition right would be important for the 1,650 people directly employed in the aquaculture industry, unquote. That's a much lower number than industry uses. There comes a point they have to evolve. Time for this industry to get out of the ocean and quit offloading their 
waste and impact to the environment for the rest of us to wear so they can make profits? The First Nation Wild Salmon Alliance includes 120 First Nations who want fish farms to leave BC waters. Bob believes industry pumps up the job numbers as a scare tactic. And so I think that's why the industry focuses on jobs, jobs, jobs. And, you know, they go, oh my God, all the lights are going to go out on coastal British Columbia. And it's just not true. Alexander Morton takes issue with fish farm industry efforts to paint closures as devastating to isolated communities. I think there's really only two remote communities where there's no jobs other than the salmon farming, perhaps, and that's Clem 2 and Ahousit. But Ahousit has just become the proud owner of several tourism industries, uh, businesses. Skookum John told us about Ahousit earlier this season and how the community is divided over the 14 fish farms in their territory. Clem 2 is where the Kittisoo First Nation lives, and their community is happy to have fish farms. I've got more to tell you about Kittisoo shortly, but Bob Chamberlain says the term isolated communities is pretty broadly defined by some. Certainly Kittisoo hates with their isolation up way up the north coast. And, you know, it's not, there's no highway there, so to speak. But I know that the nations that are supportive, Wiwakai, Wiwakam, Shawitsis, Basala, Nakwetau, Fagil, they're not isolated. You know, Wiwakai, Wiwakam is Campbell River and Cape Much. Guasala Nakwetauk is in Port Hardy. So, but I think what they're doing is they're trying to give the impression that all isolated communities of First Nations on the coast support this industry. And how dare you ignore their expression of what they want in their territories? It's simply not true. Twice as many farms have been closed by isolated communities. Alex doesn't buy the idea that closing the fish farms will lead to massive unemployment. It is incredibly hard to hire anybody right now in, for example, construction or electrician or plumber, childcare or ferry workers or alternative energy installation. I don't know where everybody went, but jobs is not the problem right now. Finding people to fill those jobs is the problem. So if if the minister is worried, and, and as she should be, about the individuals in the industry, what, sh- what needs to be done is just open an office that helps them either find a job or build a new career, help with training, That same transition planning document on the DFO website says that approximately 30% of the labor force of the four largest companies are Indigenous people. Doing the math, 30% of 1650 is just under 500 jobs. The stats are from two or three years ago, so perhaps the number of jobs has grown. But even so, it suggests that Indigenous people are not getting the majority of jobs, even in their own territories. The Kittisuhehe First Nation, mentioned just now by Alex and Bob, is one of the few truly isolated communities that have a fish farm. There's no road into Klemtu where the Kittisu live. It's about 800 kilometers north of Vancouver. Uh, in this middle of the central coast of, of BC, uh, the last stop for BC ferries when they're heading to um, Prince Rupert. Isaiah Robinson is a Kittisu councillor and the manager of the Kittisu Development Corporation. About 315 of its 500 members live in Clem 2. 
I wanted to know what this isolation means for the community's economy and job prospects. So how many businesses do you have? Ooh, that's a good question. I think we have several, uh, but the main ones are the fuel station, the store, um, the seafoods company and the forestry company and the lodge. So we have five main uh, companies that we operate within the territory. The Kittasu are an outlier in the fish farm business. This First Nation has owned the fish farm tenures since the 1990s. Tenures give the right to put buildings and infrastructure onto the water. The Kittasu First Nation owns the tenures for six locations, and they've been leasing them to Maui for more than 20 years. Before the fish farms arrived, Isaiah says they were mostly fishermen, feeding their community and selling the rest. But the commercial fishery collapsed in the 1980s, and without the ability to make a living fishing, the result was high unemployment and lots of social problems. Nothing going on other than, you know, your average public service uh, employment opportunities and stuff like that, which which in a rural community aren't sustainable or aren't there there weren't that many options during that time. So um, the, the leaders of the time, their overall goal was um, to have a breadwinner for every household. A breadwinner in every household and eliminate the social problems that came with unemployment. A good idea and a difficult one to achieve in an isolated community with few jobs. And that's when the agreement with Maui way back when it was called New Treco, came to be. Isaiah says the agreement with Maui in 1998 helped Kitasu meet the goal of a breadwinner in every household. The nation began with the aim of having 70% of the jobs on the fish farms filled by Kitasu members. That's the goal. That's the goal. It doesn't mean they, they, we hit that because we have, we have a 99% employment rate in time too. So our employment rate is so high and sound. It, it's the, the, the population divvy, divvies up in other entities. So we, we maybe we don't have that 70%, but we still have a good chunk of, of their operations. Probably like 60% of it is, is our many members. The fish processing plant handles Maui salmon, and they have a smoked salmon plant called Clem2 Spirit, which sells in Walmart and Metro grocery stores. But there are other businesses that are not fish farm dependent. There's a second processing plant that handles wild salmon, sea cucumber, and herring roe. The Kittasu have resuscitated their commercial fishing industry. They own fishing boats and catch wild salmon and herring. And they have a joint forestry business with Western Forest Products that logs selectively. Despite those additional businesses, Isaiah says the Kittasu are dependent on fish farms for 51% of the jobs in Klemtu. And while the Kittasu own the tenures, the license to stock the farms comes from the federal government. He fears if the farms are forced to close, the job losses will bring a return of the social problems. When it comes down to it, you can be as creative as possible, but getting rates from 20 to $30 an hour in a remote community, there's not any businesses that are paying people that much amount of money. It's just not feasible. The amount of social assistance we'd be on it would completely destroy this community. Maui continues to invest in the fish farms in Kittasu territory. A new accommodation barge has 28 bedrooms with TVs, a staff restaurant, a gym and office space, and a state-of-the-art feed station that monitors feeding and fish activity remotely at four salmon farms using artificial intelligence. The feed station is in the same building as the new smokehouse. All that investment will only pay off 
if Maui can put fish in those farms with a license from the federal government. That lack of control over the farming licenses can cause similar problems when a First Nation doesn't want fish farms, because often they have no way to make a farm leave as long as fisheries and oceans keeps renewing the license. So how does a First Nation community, without the backing of a government, get a fish farm to close? For the Quaqua, it took the naive curiosity of the German-born band manager and the support of an open-minded chief to shift things. For many Germans, living in a landlocked country that's very crowded, Canada, and in particular British Columbia, is a dream vacation, or a dream place to live. When Frank Volker was 19, his parents packed up and left Munich to live their dream in British Columbia. He said, here are the keys to the apartments, take over the lease, we're leaving. So usually the kids move out, in my instance, my parents moved out. It was 1985 and his parents opened a fishing lodge on the Skeena River near Terrace. Frank stayed in Munich, became a bank manager, got married. But a decade later, after many holiday visits, he decided to follow his parents to BC. He brought his banking skills and worked in finance, first in Terrace and then Campbell River, before starting a consulting business. He thought his German connections could be helpful to businesses wanting to attract European visitors. I reached out to a band who just started their Bristol Bear viewing operation. I said, you know what? Uh, I could redo your website, uh, put a German mirror page on it, and I can get your clients from Germany. I can work with you. Well, they like that. After finishing that contract, a friend suggested there was another band that also did grizzly bear tourism and could use his help. I thought, well, I thought I'm over grizzly bears, but I'm not. Yeah, it's like an addiction especially when you're a city slicker from Europe. And so he, he made the introductions uh, for me and Chief Stephen Dick. And I asked the chief, are you interested in, in starting a, a bear viewing business in your territory? And he said, well, you're a very poor band. Uh, we don't get funds like the other bands uh, because we don't have a residential reserve. If you can get something going, you have my blessing, but yeah, we don't have a penny. But Frank cobbled together some seed money from a small logging business the band ran and then got some development money from the federal government and built state-of-the-art grizzly bear viewing towers. They, they arrive by boat, they, they sit in a van, they are driven to the platforms, out of the van, onto the platform, spend an hour, one and a half, depending on when the bears show up. That business in Philip's arm is owned by the Quaker First Nation, one of the smallest in B.C., after the success of the viewing towers, Frank was asked to be the band manager. The job was mainly developing businesses for the band, and he saw the fish farm in the territory and thought maybe there was a way for Quaqua to make some money by having an agreement with another fish farm company. The band was not receiving any money or jobs from the Maui farm. I did not have an opinion about fish farming either way. I didn't know anything. I talked to the membership and said, you know what, I have to find other economic development opportunities for you. I would like to look into fish farming. And they said, no, 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 no. We don't want that. I said, Why? They had a very negative attitude towards 
fish farming, but it was more a gut feeling and it was not based in clear research or something like that. This was in the early 2000s, before science had been published about the risks of fish farms. My experience is that you learn most from the inside. So why we don't, why don't try we to become a partner of one of the licensees and um, see what we can learn from the inside. Frank says Chief Stephen Dick was wary but gave the go-ahead. Chief Dick didn't want to be interviewed. He wanted Frank to tell the Kwaikwa story. So they pushed us away. Then we said, okay, if there's no economic opportunity for us, if we can't see their bad reports and stuff like that as a partner, then we have to assume they have something to hide. Frank went on a mission to find out what was going on in the Phillips Arm fish farm. I reached out to the top expert about fish farming, Alex Morton. We hit it off right away. And I said, Alex, help me to understand this industry. And it's not that Alex influenced us. She just gave us access to data. And then she left it us, up to us. And it was quite shocking what we learned. So then we said, okay, yeah, there's more work to do. Like testing the health of the Atlantic salmon on the fish farms. A big idea, considering the fish farm didn't allow outsiders to test their fish. What we did, we spent a lot of money in developing a fish test, fish health test protocol, where we would take samples from uh, the fish farms and have them tested our way, not the way the Department of Fisheries and Oceans tests. Because sometimes when they do their testing, they test, just test seven or eight fish out of 600,000. So we wanted to have a much bigger sample size also, we wanted to work with independent laboratories. We didn't want to use a lab that was industry-friendly or government-friendly. Kwekwa also reached out to Fisheries and Oceans and asked to work together on the testing, pointing out their entitlement to the territory. Surprisingly, DFO agreed, and that was Frank's ticket onto the farm. Kwekwa hired an environmental company to represent them, and two of their members were allowed on the farm as observers while the samples were collected. And the protocol was that we would test 30 fish. We would reimburse Maui for the loss of 30 uh, market-sized fish, and which is almost four times the size of the usual DFO audit, right? And then we used three international laboratories, one in Chile, one in Scotland, and one in uh, Portland, Maine. This was Frank's first time on a fish farm, and as he looked down into the pens, he was shocked. What did the fish look like? Like when you got up close to the fish farms, that would be a first, I would imagine. What were you seeing? Fish in trouble. But the, the crew explained it that they made a mistake, and just before we arrived, yeah, they caught 150,000 fish because there were just too many in the cages, in the nets. And that stress of the overpopulation yeah, created a lot of visible problems with the fish. But he didn't believe that crowding in the pen produced what he saw. I'm not an expert. I just saw horribly mutilated fish. Fish with split heads. I don't think that's a result of the overpopulation. Uh, fish with eyes hanging 
like like in a bad Halloween movie, right? A bad Halloween costume, and many many fish with lesions on 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 the skin. So they didn't look healthy to me, not at all. And the tests came back reporting diseases that have since been reported in fish farms all over the province. So what was verified that the Pison Rio virus was in hundred percent of the samples, every single fish. However, before we tested, DFO already said, one result of your test will be uh, that you find 100% Pisin Rio virus. We know that already, but we don't consider it a problem. Frank hadn't expected the bad news. Our hope actually was, that might sound funnier, but we were hoping that the report comes back clean. That all our concerns were for nothing, and the fish farm in Phillips Arm is not a problem for the environment. Now that the band knew what was happening below the waterline, they became more adamant that the farm should leave. This time around, Maui agreed to talk, looking to bargain with the band. Because we made it pretty officially that we are not interested in becoming a part of this industry for many, many reasons. And they, they didn't give up right away. So they, 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 they said, we want to work with you. We want to make you a partner. Yeah? We want to stay in your territory and, and we want you to benefit from our presence. Then Maui asked for a meeting with the community so they could make their case to stay. So we reached out to our members and said, this is the situation. Do you want to hear what they have to say? And they said, no, there's no change mandate. We don't, we don't want to meet with them. We don't want to hear what they have to say. That that train has left the station long ago. And that was the moment when, when the company says, now, okay, if, we, if membership doesn't even want to talk to us, then uh, there's, there's no way yeah, that we can continue to, to operate there. After 30 years of telling the farm they should leave, this was exciting news. Chief Dick and Frank, along with a DFO official to serve as a witness, began to negotiate when and how the fish farm would leave. Maui pointed out they couldn't just pack up and go. They had fish to grow out and hatchery fish waiting to be moved into the fish farm. It's a business, and we know, you know. So we wanted to be fair as well. So we granted them a three-year transitional period from 2019 to the summer of 2022. There was a blip when the band found themselves on the wrong side of the fight to remove fish farms. In 2020, Fisheries Minister Bernadette Jordan announced that farms in the Discovery Islands would have to leave once they harvested their fish. Kwekwa's agreement gave Maui one more growing season. Frank and Chief Dick got in touch with Minister Jordan's office. And we approached them. We said, you know what? We have given our word that they can stay there until 2022. You put us in an awkward position. We are anti-fish farming. And now we are pleading for a fish farmer that the fish farmer can have one more season. What are you doing? But Minister Jordan said there would be no exceptions. The farm would have to close after the next harvest. To the relief of the Kwekwa, Maui grew out the fish, harvested, and closed in 2021. The Kwekwa asked to buy the farm equipment, the cages, the float houses, feed shed, and walkways. They had plans to convert the space into a center for seaweed cultivation and regenerative forestry. Frank is now using his skills to combine business development with environmental protection. The key has to be 
to have a stewardship economy. That's a for-profit approach. The Quaqua is developing a business plan for a stewardship economy that Frank says will bring more jobs than the fish farms and can work in any of the isolated First Nations communities. Despite the Quaqua's success in removing a fish farm, it was only one, and they're a very small community. Frank knows it's a bigger job to remove fish farms throughout the province, but he believes it has to happen. In the spring of 2023, the Quaqua got pulled into the lawsuit against the Discovery Island fish farms ordered closed by Minister Murray. The Wiwakai and Wiwakum First Nations joined Cermak, Grieg, and Maui in their appeal to the federal court to set aside the decision. In the filing by those two First Nations was a line that said, although Kweka have indicated they support this application, they are not a party. Kweka was surprised and not happy. No one had asked them. Frank says the Kwekwa and the Wiwakai and Wiwakam are sister nations. The three tribes form the Lakwatak Nation, but they make their own decisions. The Kwekwa immediately asked for the phrase to be removed from the legal document and threatened to go to the BC Law Society if it was not. A couple of months later, the sentence was gone. And the tension between First Nations over fish farms continues coalition of 19 First Nations and the Union of BC Indian Chiefs applied for the right to be part of the lawsuit too, in their case to support Minister Murray's decision to close the farms. It's very unfortunate what's happening here, yeah. and I see a lot, a lot of broken glass and broken relationships um, and, and, and problems for the foreseeable future. In the meantime, it's business as usual where the fish farms remain. With one exception, Cermak seems to be preparing for a shift in how they will operate. The company has been testing a semi-closed farm on the west side of Vancouver Island in a Hausa territory. Industry has been arguing that semi-closed systems are the solution to keeping the wild salmon safe. They argue the big balloon-like swimming pool separates the farm fish from the open water and wild salmon. I saw it when I went out with Dan Lewis in Skookum John's boat. We watched as a barge carrying farmed fish from the semi-closed farm in Miller Channel docked at an open net fish farm called Bodden. But two months later, in one of their weekly tours to check on the farms, Dan and Skookum watched as the semi-closed farm infrastructure was towed away from Bodden. Semi-contained, second time being taken out. See ya. Don't ever come back. They didn't know why. Well, it turned out that this farm was a test, the second one Cermak had done in Miller Channel. The first had to be stopped and the fish harvested early because technical problems were killing the fish. It's not clear why the fish were moved early and then the semi-closed pens towed away in this second test. It's still putting out as much poop as an open net pen salmon farm, but it all comes out a small hole right at the bottom. And so it's, it's possible that the poop piles up in a big cone-shaped pile and possibly it was getting close to the bottom of the semi-closed system. 
Then on another tour around the fish farms, they found the semi-closed fish farm equipment at another location, Muscle Rock. While Dan and Skookum thought the semi-close was moved because it was a failure, turns out there's another plan. They've applied right now to expand Muscle Rock to include three of the semi-closed systems that were here before. And ultimately, they want to have an array of five of them at Muscle Rock. Yeah, they're actually going to put them in a grid shape, and then the grid will hold five of those round uh, semi-closed systems. I could only think of five poop towers under each farm. In interviews with Fish Farm Publications, Cermak has called the second test a success and predicted it would be the future of fish farming in BC. But that would be for Minister Murray to determine. And as Dan said, semi-closed farms aren't perfect. The fish can't be grown to marker weight in the semi-closed farm because there isn't enough room for the fish as they get bigger. I emailed Cermak to get more information about their plans for the semi-closed farms. The company declined my request for an interview and said it continues to explore innovative ways to raise salmon in British Columbia, and the results of their tests will be shared if and when they become part of their operation. At the end of May, Fisheries and Ocean Minister Joyce Murray quietly announced she would not be making her decision on closing the rest of the fish farms in BC until the fall. The June announcement was expected to include the transition plan to move open net fish farms out of the water. Despite the steady stream of visitors to the minister's office since her February decision, her statement said the consultation period would continue throughout the summer. Work continues in the development of the transition plan, incorporating feedback received through consultations. To respond to requests from First Nations and others, we have extended consultation on the open net pen aquaculture transition to all interested parties through the summer. The transition plan will be shared in due course. The continuing consultation surprised many who point out that for more than two decades, the evidence has been building that fish farms are bad for wild salmon. Then at the end of July, another surprise. In the final stages of fulfilling the Prime Minister's mandate to move the fish farms out of BC waters, Fisheries Minister Joyce Murray lost her cabinet job. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau shuffled his cabinet. Joyce Murray was out, Diane Le Boutelier became the new minister. Joyce Murray had announced just before the cabinet shuffle that she would not be running in the next election, expected in 2025. There was one piece of good news in the summer of 2023. For the second year, the pink salmon returned in numbers not seen in decades. Alex Morton posted about it on social media. Hello, Alexander Wharton here. I know I've been doom and gloom for years, but I have some amazing news for you. The Pacific Salmon Commission on August 12th reported the biggest pink salmon catch in their test fisheries in the history of test fishing. Test fishing is used to estimate fish returns for the whole province. 92,000 pink salmon were intercepted. Those pink salmon are not just any pink salmon. 
I looked at them when they went to sea, when they were kids, passing through the Discovery Islands, and that was the first year that all the salmon farms were removed from the Discovery Islands and also eastern Johnson Straits. Alex gave credit for this to the Prime Minister and Fisheries Ministers Jordan and Murray. Those fish, in research that I conducted and will be soon published, those fish had 96% fewer sea lice than the generation that went to sea in 2020, the last year that there were farms. And she reminded people that this had happened back in 2004, when a former DFO scientist convinced the B.C. government to keep the fish farms empty in the Broughton Archipelago for a test year. Alex and the scientist published a paper on this. That pink salmon generation returned 10 times stronger than the parental generation. The fish are talking. I hope we're listening. Take the farms out. Allow these fish to get to sea. And the response is truly miraculous. So that's all for now. I'll be keeping my eye on the salmon people and we'll report back when a decision on fish farms is made and the legal challenges have been settled. Just a final note about industry and its refusal to talk to me or even acknowledge my emails. Ian Roberts, Director of Communications for Maui, did respond to my request for an interview. You might remember I interviewed Ian last season and gave him space to make his points, but he wasn't happy. So this time he refused my request and asked me to read a statement instead. I asked him to record it. Here's his statement. We will respectfully decline your latest invitation to participate in your podcast, given several of our company's subject matter experts and First Nation partners had previously interviewed with you, but you chose to include very little or none of this content. Your actions so far have shown you are not willing nor wanting to fairly communicate a balance of views to your audience. Rather, you've preferred to cater to conspiracy theories and unsupported opinions. So on behalf of the thousands who are employed in the sector and millions of customers worldwide, we will spend our energy engaging with media who are willing to provide their audience a balanced and accurate representation of salmon aquaculture. In an email exchange after sending the audio, Ian agreed that in addition to speaking with him, I only spoke to one other Maui employee and one partner First Nation for the first season of The Salmon People. Those were the only people supportive of fish farms who agreed to speak with me. The Salmon People podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, Sandra Bartlett. It's a co-production with Canada's National Observer. Story editing by my Frozen Headphones production. And special thanks to the document readers. And once again, help other people find us by going to the Apple Podcast site and giving us a five-star rating. And hey, maybe even leave a comment. Thanks for listening.